electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, energy on fire around the world, gas prices, coal prices, low investment and increased demand. Goldman Sachs Global Head of Commodities, Jeff Curry. We like to call it the revenge of the old economy. And managing risk inside our borders and beyond. Retired four-star Army General Stanley McChrystal. We're the biggest problem. The greatest risk to us is actually us. Those stories plus we're talking debt deadlines and DC drama. Yeah, still flu shots and jeans. They're back. That's the upgrade from the sweats and the yoga pants they've been wearing. If you need a drink after that, we've got some booze news for you, too. It's Thursday, October 7th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan. Andrew's out today. I saw something also yesterday, Becky, that, that when I read it, the market was down about 450 points, and then I, it, it was rallying, and I saw that, I don't know, had to be a 20-something uh, writer at, at one of these places, said that on, on prospects for the reconciliation bill, <laughs> making progress. <laughs> I'm not convinced that the stock market once no, that $5 trillion dollar bill Well, the market passed. is very concerned about the debt ceiling, though. Yes. That, that is a big deal. You had Jamie Dimon and others talking about what a catastrophe it would be. The effects would be cascading. So day one would be bad. But the cascading effects in the ensuing weeks could go anywhere from a recession to a complete catastrophe for the global economy. And I don't know why anyone would take a chance like that. J.P. Morgan has to sit down. If the deal doesn't get done today, they were planning on sitting down Monday and going through every single one of their contracts that could be tied to anything that's going to get thrown off um, if we actually default on our debt. So this is not a small thing. He thinks it's completely irresponsible that we'd even get this close. Uh, They got time now. They got time to push it off. I don't know what I hate this phrase. Kick the can down the road. Deal with this again at the beginning of December. I don't know what President Sanders. uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know what Bernie Sanders is actually saying, though, about he's saying no reconciliation no matter what. It is wrong. It is really not playing fair that one or two people think that they should be able to stop what 48 members of the Democratic caucus want, what the American people want, what the president of the United States wants. Look, if we were in a room and in a caucus where half the people wanted something lower and half the people wanted something higher, you know, you've got to go somewhere in the middle. We're not in that position. This is just pushing it off. McConnell, uh, you know, basically it's a real weird chess match so that people can have this position to, you know, to politicize what's going on after it finally happens and saying, wow, pointing to what, you know, these amendments the Democrats had to vote, whatever has to happen. But it's a real kabuki dance. But they can now there's time to do the reconciliation to raise the debt ceiling just with Democratic I don't votes. Know that we'll that see is, they do. I don't know that that's going to happen or not. The, I mean, we could be dealing Republicans with the same situation. We could be yeah. dealing with the same situation but, at the beginning December. of December. Yeah. But you know what? You know what's happening between now and December? We'll see what happens Halloween. in November. 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we'll see. What, well, Halloween, we'll see what trick or treats happen. When, well, there's some important elections coming up. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in Virginia after McAuliffe said, you know, parents involved in their kids' education since when? Uh, McAuliffe said that. We, even uh, New Jersey's getting closer. And we have Phil on all, all the time, Governor Murphy. Uh, but that's it, for the first time there was a poll that showed that it wasn't double digits. What, what his lead means. over the. Yeah, oh, Citarelli uh, and Murphy over. So we're going to have Citarelli on, theoretically. Uh, I've asked to do that just to hear what he has to say. But um, let's see. Uh, and what else? Is there something else? Mm, something else on your it. list of uh, things yeah, I want to rant about? Yeah, something <laughs> that I saw that I just went, what? Stocks to watch this morning. Levi Strauss posting better than expected results. The apparel maker said it benefited from an easing of the restrictions from the pandemic that uh, prompted people to refresh their wardrobes. I love the Levi Strauss story. You know, people yeah, are finally refresh. dressing up again in yeah, jeans. That's in, the upgrade from the sweats and the yoga pants they've been wearing. Refreshing my wardrobe is when I finally wash these pants. Uh, uh, is what, what? People wonder why we're in different studios. That might be what. Back, you never. It's, there's not a problem, is it? No. I don't have to hang them up. Just stand them up. I, I know you're joking because Penelope would have never allowed that to happen. She's a great, you know, I've Keep called her, her a home. I've, she's got an unbelievable career right now. But there was a time when if I ever called her, I'd call her a homemaker. And she goes, you're damn right I am because that's a, that's a full time. She makes a, you know. Yes. A, a it is a full time job. Yeah, it's a full time job. And it, it should be, yeah. you know, admired because she's great. Now she does both. Bourbon distillers may be uh, ready to sample their own product when they get their next tax bill. Right now, there are more than 10 uh, billion barrels of bourbon aging in Kentucky. It's a record high, but sales are being hurt by both trade disputes uh, and the impact of the pandemic on tourism. And you can imagine restaurants and bars, everything else. Bourbon barrels are subject uh, to a yearly property tax. So the tax bill goes up. As inventory grows, the distillers are set to pay $33 million in aging barrel taxes uh, this year. Wow, I thought if it was anything that moves, you can tax. I I was going to say, an annual tax on the barrels as a property tax? It's a property tax. That's crazy. This year's flu season could be particularly severe. That warning comes from CDC director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. She says that the United States population may have a reduced immunity against flu after cases fell to an all-time low last year as everybody was locked down, wearing masks, not being uh, exposed to other people. That estimate stemmed from the pandemic keeping people at home. She's urging Americans to be vaccinated for both the flu and for COVID-19. Did you get your flu shot yet? Uh, that, that, you know, I, I no, didn't get a lot of, I, I know I didn't get a lot of those. Um, I didn't get, I don't really remember. I don't remember having major problems with it. Most of the time I, I sort of, uh, I don't know. I didn't, but I, I, now I have no problem. You know, COVID is a, it's a different sitch, isn't it? I'm pretty sure, you know, I'm going to flu a couple of days, man. And, and okay. I told it's you, like when I you have, have young kids. And, like when you have young kids, you kind of, I told you about Tamiflu. You don't believe me. No, about I, I just, I've never done it. I've never tried it. I, I know that you've been a big fan of it and, and Love it's it. helped you. Uh, I, I've never tried it before. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Does it give you any weird dreams or anything like the malaria stuff or anything? Um, I don't think so. I, you know, weirder dreams. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I mean, don't you still have just, I, I don't, you know, sometimes I just, I surprise myself. It's like, wow, you're, you're a sick individual. I mean, dreams can be very, <laughs> dreams can be very strange. Two, days, two nights ago, I dreamed I was throwing up all night. I like, glad to wake up from that one. Coming up, Goldman Sachs' top voice on commodities with a supply and demand saga fueling higher prices everywhere. At the core of this energy crisis in Europe was simply the wind quit blowing. And the two late-night comments on energy supply relief, one in Russia, one right here at home, impacting prices around the world today. UK and Europe is just a glimpse of what we think is going to happen across the rest of the commodity complex. Squawk Pod on Energy, right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Energy markets globally are on a wild ride. Crude oil prices here in the U.S. hit their highest level in seven years. OPEC, the International Organization of Oil Producing Nations, decided not to increase global energy production this week. And the U.S., now a leading energy exporter, had supported a ramp up. Across the pond, in the U.K., natural gas prices have been climbing, up something like 800 percent from the historical average. And late yesterday, on Russian television, President Vladimir Putin said that his country was prepared to export record volumes of nat gas across Europe. It made immediate impact on energy trading prices there. Here's CNBC's Juliana Tattlebaum in London. This is hugely important for the European, UK economy. The uh, region is highly dependent on natural gas. Natural gas powers uh, our electricity, keeps the lights on, keeps homes heated. So there's a huge amount of concern around this spike in natural gas prices leading to a surge in electricity bills this winter. And there's a number of factors driving the price higher that have driven the price higher on both the supply and the demand side. On the demand side, um, economies opening around the world have driven a surge in demand for natural gas, in particular in Asia, where the region is trying to shift away from coal. And then on the supply side here in Europe and in the UK, there have been storage capacity issues, inventories have been low, and maintenance delays and infrastructure adjustments have meant that supply has been constrained. And the UK is particularly vulnerable because we have very limited capacity, and mean, which means that we operate on a near just-in-time system. So consumers, businesses are bracing for a very different difficult winter, and this whole episode has really highlighted how dependent Europe is on Russia. Gas prices here in the U.S. have risen in step with global energy spikes. 
prices at the pump have reached about $3.20 a gallon on average, more in some parts of the West Coast. Now, there's more driving demand, as offices of previously remote workers welcome back some cubicle dwellers. And psychologically, paying more to fill the tank has an impact on how consumers feel about the economy, which could lead to intervention. The United States is considering releasing oil from our emergency stash to add new supply to the market. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, in comments Wednesday at a Financial Times event, said it's, quote, under consideration that the administration could tap the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, or SPR, to calm oil and gas prices. The SPR is the largest emergency oil reserve in the world, more than 600 million barrels held off the coast of Texas and Louisiana, and previous taps to the supply have included disasters like hurricanes or an emergency sale during the 2011 Arab Spring. Becky Quick spoke to Jeff Curry, Goldman Sachs Head of Global Commodity Research, about what this possible relief could do. Here's Becky. And Jeff, let's talk through this problem first. Uh, This is yet another one of the huge supply issues that we're realizing we have right now. It's created by more demand and some troubles with some of the uh, alternative energy that we were kind of hoping would would lead to more uh, better results than than it has at this point. Um, Where are the possible places of relief from this? We heard from Putin yesterday. Is he the biggest one? Well, let's talk about what's driving this. Um, Yeah, it's the same dynamics impacting UK gas, European gas, the coal market in China, the oil market, it is structural underinvestment and the ability to supply and deliver these commodities, particularly hydrocarbons in the face of decarbonization. We like to call it the revenge of the old economy. Put simply, poor returns in the old economy saw capital redirected to the new economy, choking off the capital needed to grow that supply base. Then you overlay ESG issues on top of that, you create this very significant structural impediment into supply. Then we had the big increase in demand following COVID that exposed all of these supply constraints. Inventories are being brought drawn down to very low levels, leaving the market very vulnerable to any type of supply or demand disruption. At the core of this energy crisis in Europe was simply the wind quit blowing. And so you didn't have that wind power generation and you had to replace it with natural gas. And you went to that natural gas, no supply, no inventories, and boom, we had a spike in prices. Um, So what's happening in the oil market is similar to what's happening in the UK. Like I say, UK and Europe is just a glimpse of what we think is going to happen across the rest of the commodity complex. And so bringing this back to, you know, the U.S. comments last yesterday and last night is, you know, the deficit in oil is so large that neither the U.S. administration nor OPEC can really do anything about this. That's why we think there's a lot of upside risk in oil in the near term, which is why we maintain our forecast of $90 a barrel. So if the U.S. can't really do anything about it with the strategic petroleum reserves, what, what would make a difference? Well, um, there's only two things that can make a difference. You bring on new supply or you destroy demand, you take demand out of the system. We're already seeing some demand destruction taking place in Europe, um, lots of it taking place in China. I want to emphasize that a lot of this started with China in the lack of investment in coal. Um, They didn't have the coal to meet their power demand, so they imported gas, imported oil, tightened up the global gas markets, then it spread um, to, to Europe. So the key point here is you either got to create supply or you got to take demand out. Now, adding the SPR, which is a very complicated procedural process to do, um, would only marginally help. At, at, you know, you here you need to have you know large scale investment in these supplies, which is unlikely to happen. But that's why this is structural in nature. 
You know, our new long-term forecast for oil is $85 a barrel, but I want to emphasize there's a lot of risk to the upside. You know, we've been arguing that this is the first innings of a commodity super cycle and everything is indicating, hey, this thing is getting a lot tighter than what we thought initially much sooner. And look, if the way to do it is by investing and making sure that you're drilling more, um, that doesn't seem really likely from any of the, the big oil companies at this point. Um, you know, we, we now know you're in the 80 $82 a barrel range right now, and we're not seeing an uptick in U.S. drilling. We don't know where that um, equilibrium price is in the current environment. We're going to find out where it is. But you can think about it with the ESG backdrop. Um, the hurdle rate for the level at which you get this drilling to take place is substantially higher than what anybody thought. Then once we actually tap the oil service industries, there's the question of cost inflation. Is there the labor? Are the, the fracking supplies there? We're going to find all of this out when we attempt to see you know, that uptick in drilling. But I want to emphasize, it's the same if we're talking oil drilling, um, metals and mining, agriculture, the entire commodity complex, or call it the old economy, um, we still have not seen an uptick in investing. And as a result, these supply constraints are with us. I want to make one last point about the transitory nature of these shocks, is that when your supply chains are severely depleted like they are with low inventories, it leaves these markets very vulnerable to normal shocks. And so what would normally be a tail risk event that could make these markets move? All you need is something relatively normal, like the wind quit blowing in Europe. So this may be transitory, but the probability of these events happening more and more and again and again starts to become more persistent. If you're right and oil goes to $85 a barrel or, or even higher, what's that going to mean for gasoline prices? Because that might be the surest uh, and quickest way for the consumer to feel some of these issues, at least in the United States. Um, right now, we're talking about $3.22 for a, a gallon for the national average. But that doesn't mean that some places aren't paying north of 4 and, and even north of $5 in the United States right now. When we go back to 2018, when we were at similar levels, um, the amount of noise you heard from consumers um, was substantially greater than what it is today. You know, what that means is that when we look at the incomes, whether if it's coming from, you know, you know, redistribution policies that are currently in place or it's coming from increased wages, it means they can sustain these higher prices and in a much more robust fashion than what we've seen. Gasoline prices in Europe and France are, you know, two dollars or two euros a liter right now, which is unprecedented. One of the key reasons why you don't hear the noise coming out of the consumers on both sides of the Atlantic and Europe in particular, they have subsidies going to the lower income groups that would normally be vulnerable to these price increases, um, which then protects them. from. So I want to emphasize the ability for the system to sustain higher prices today is much greater than what we've seen in the past. Jeff, thanks for your time today. Great. Thank you for having me. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, brace yourselves. Lessons on risk and America's national security with retired four-star Army General Stanley McChrystal. There's a saying in the military, when your enemy's making a mistake, don't interrupt it. We've got our weapon pointed at our own foot. We're about to pull a trigger. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.
You're listening to Squawk Pod today with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. Here's Becky. In a new book, our next guest offers a battle-tested system for addressing risk. Let's welcome retired four-star Army General Stanley McChrystal, who served as commander of Joint Special Operations Command, or the JSOC, also the U.S. military's top counterterrorism force. He was the commander of the U.S. troops in Afghanistan until he retired in 2010. He's now the co-author of the new book called Risk, A User's Guide. General McChrystal, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's really great to have you here. I, I know you look at how we assess risk as a nation, and you don't think we're very good at it. Why is that? Yeah, it's, it's probably not surprising. I grew up with risk, and I've spent the last two years, along with my co-author, studying it. And the conclusion is we don't do it very well, which won't surprise anyone. Maybe more surprising is we're the biggest problem. The greatest risk to us is actually us, as organizations particularly. And the reason is, is we tend to focus on outside threats. We're always looking on the horizon, wondering if we can predict this happening, that change, this tsunami. And in reality, what we ought to be looking at is our own vulnerabilities, our immune system. The human body has a human immune system, which is a miracle. It detects, assesses, responds, and learns from about 10,000 microorganisms that potentially attack us every day. And yet we don't worry too much about it because typically it works very well. But our organizations stumble. Think of our nation in the face of COVID-19, because actually COVID-19 wasn't a surprise. Pandemics come with regularity. And we have good knowledge in public health of what to do about it. And we even got a scientific miracle in the extraordinary speed in which vaccines were created. But we still dropped the ball. And we dropped the ball at an extraordinary cost in life and on our economy. And that's largely because internally, our ability or unwillingness to communicate, to have a clear narrative, to make tough decisions, to overcome inertia, to get the timing right on many things, to be adaptable, and of course, have leadership, have all fallen short. What could or should we have done differently? How, how could we have changed the course of COVID here? I think we could have started at the very beginning, identifying the problem. We have the knowledge to say we don't know the specifics of this particular novel coronavirus, but we generally know we could have had clear communication across. I'm just talking inside the United States now, but it applies globally. Clear communication from the very top down. Admit what we don't know, but communicate effectively what we do. Develop a narrative. I would have used a wartime narrative. We are asking for the common defense of our nation. We're asking for every American to do their part to defend. And that means the commander in chief has to stand up and take that leadership role, but also local leaders need to do the same as well. And then we needed to make decisions early. The hard part of a pandemic is you have to make decisions because of exponential growth before it's evident to the full population. That takes leadership. That's what we have leaders for, to make those tough decisions that may get criticized in the moment, but are necessary long-term. Well, General, obviously you're you know, you know a lot about it, the Afghanistan as much as anyone after having commanded there. And, and you know, without we always talk about it, without uh, individuals, we don't know where we get individuals like you. I, certainly not. Uh, I, I didn't have <laughs> the cut of my cloth to do. To, to, uh, so we thank you for that. But uh, you told Joe Scarborough that when you did work with President Obama and Vice President Biden, when you were in Afghanistan, that they always listened to you. They didn't do everything you wanted, but in every instance, they listened to you. 
We now know that in, with the exit from Afghanistan and the chaos that we recently saw, that, that the president, President Biden, did not listen to the generals. Do you agree with that? Well, Joe, thanks for the kind words about me first. And they did listen to me. Again, they didn't always do what I recommended. I think that's what happened. I wasn't in the room for this latest iteration. But my sense is that the military leadership, DOD, got the chance to voice their positions. The president then is not necessarily in a position to accept those and follow those recommendations. It is defined as best military advice. And then the commander in chief has to make the decision. Where I would have been upset is if I felt like they didn't give me a hearing. Do you, having you know, blood, sweat and tears and, and what we went through for 20 years, what are your feelings for the way things ended there, General? What do you, I mean, it must be, you tell me, what are your feelings for, for the way things ended there and the way it ended? Yeah, um, I mean, a sense of loss, probably like every veteran, military or civilian who was involved in some way there, a sense of loss and a sense of failure. We didn't accomplish what we wanted to, and now the Afghan people are in a very difficult position. I would have recommended a different course of action to the president. But I respect the fact that if the process goes and we get one, then we execute the best that we can. Now, I really think we need to decide what we're going to do going forward. I think we still have some kind of moral connection and commitment to the Afghan people, the females. I think what we can do within a realm to pressure the Taliban regime over time is going to be key. And then, of course, we'll take on the counter-terrorist requirements as they surface General, uh, just in terms of the risk that we face right now, I'll bring this back to the markets in a conversation we've been having about uh, the debt limit. Um, we're getting awfully close to hitting that debt limit. Today's October 7th, and I think October 18th is the date. Uh, yesterday, the Secretary of Defense said that national security could be threatened if they don't pass the debt limit, that the troops might not get paid in that situation. Does it make you nervous, or is this an example of where we don't manage risks very well, where we're our, our own worst enemies? It's a perfect example. There's a saying in the military, uh, when your enemy's making a mistake, don't interrupt it. And if I was one of our enemies now, I would just be sitting back and not touching anything because we are, we've got our weapon pointed at our own foot. We're about to pull a trigger. Gentlemen, Crystal, I want to thank you very much for being with us this morning and also want to echo my thanks for your service, sir. We, we really appreciate it. And um, thank you for being here. Thank you. Okay, that's Squawk Pod for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. All three will be back tomorrow. You can follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.